with the fundamental rights of others. I'm taking a pause so that you can process uh, all that. This tribunal, seated in Birmingham, ruled that saying that a person, a human being, was made in the image of God, male or female, is incompatible with human dignity. I don't know whether that shocks you. That the very foundation of human dignity is that human beings are made in the image of God, male and female, right? So for someone to argue that, to believe that today is a violation of human dignity is absurd. But it happened, brethren. So would you prefer someone to tell you you are not made in the, human of, in, the, in the image of God so that you feel more dignified? But that's the challenge of secularism. That we have people whose biggest problem is God and everything that comes out of it. So secularism is this attempt to remove religious, and in this case Christian, thoughts, morals, virtues, doctrine, and practices from all facets of life and culture. It is strangling any form of godliness from human affairs. Simply put is Secularism is saying that there is no need of God in human affairs, that we can, we can function properly. So there is no need for you to bring your Christian morals or your virtues or your values into, into your cultural conversations. You keep them to yourselves. So that without God, we can still yet find our way. Of course, this has been used strongly as you talk about civic affairs, in the formation of laws, that you hear so often, people say that your Christian faith should not, the Christian faith should not be the reference to which laws are being formed. But it has also permeated academia, entrepreneurship, and many other institutions of this world, and Sad, sadly so, even the church. So why did we get to a point where God is being chased away from institutions and even from church itself? How did we get here? I have two thoughts on the same. The first one is that after the last two decades have wrestled with creating an atheistic society declaring that God is dead, that pursuit has, had, has hit a deadlock. And that deadlock is the reality that if God does not exist, it would be necessary for him to exist. It would be necessary for him to be invented. 
It is like this. If we believe that God does not exist at all in his perfection and holiness, then how can we define right and wrong anymore? Everything that you know loses its value from having been created, including life itself. If you people have existed only as an outcome of random chance, what makes the difference between you and a cup? What makes the difference? What adds any meaning to your life and liberties? Of course, we know that a cup in your house does not have liberties and, and rights. It would be absurd if someone came to your house and told you you cannot use that cup because by using it before 9 o'clock, it's violation of its rights. Right? But what makes us actually know, because for before this exponential growth of atheistic philosophy, it was believed it is because men are created by God that because of that reason, they have been endowed with rights and privileges that cannot be taken away from them. So we have a crisis that we have chased away God from we have chased away the belief in God from ourselves and we are left with a problem that we need to resolve. And that problem is, if there is no God, there is nothing that is intrinsically or inherently valuable. And so, the rise of secularism, the thought that we can have another reference for morality and values other than God himself. So once we have had a predominantly atheistic society, then we move forward to the next step of saying that we do not need God to define what is right and wrong. But secondly, I would say, is because in the last couple of years we have seen a lot of ideological wars happening. Every day we are fighting wars uh, that are ideological, basically. It is bottom-up economics or trickle-down, whatever it is. It's just an ideological war. We were arguing the other day about um, conservatism and, and liberalism. The day before that, we had an argument <clears throat> about communism and capitalism. The day before that, um, we had the war between socialism and monopolism. And before that, we warred against Nazism and Stalinism. It has been a continuous war of ideas. And this is everywhere, in economics, in gender relations. Everywhere there is an ism for you people to wrestle with. And out of that, we ended up in a situation where we are being convinced that we do not need any external references of what is right and wrong, except from solutions that human beings can create themselves. Solutions that are practical and obvious, 
and are favorable for everyone. So what makes everyone comfortable should be the most ideal situation for all of us. So it is right because it causes the least harm and generates the greatest pleasure. So in the end, what we are left with is people like myself and yourself wrestling in a society that is not telling us you have to do things as a faithful steward, as a faithful servant. It's no longer about faithful servant. It becomes more about to be pragmatic and utilitarian in nature. Now, those are two big words that probably you have never stopped to think about them. But most of you are those things. You're pragmatists. You are asking every time that something comes up, you want to ask the question, what is the most practical thing for me to do here? That's, I, I walk into many Christian spaces and I hear people saying, Majama real bana, real na story. It's not about what is the scripture saying about it. It is about what is the most pragmatic response to it. So we want to ask what is practical and realistic for us to do. But on the other end are other guys who are utilitarian. That they are seeking out to know what is they evaluate right and wrong based on outcomes. So you have been a Christian and last semester there is a unit you did not read for and you passed and all of a sudden you have developed a new philosophy of life. You don't have to really work hard to make it in life. And I know you are laughing, but there are many of you who actually are convinced that because you have seen very many people who are not working very hard, very successful through some ways, that you do not necessarily need to be very hard working to make any ends meet. That you are convinced that somehow you will, you will maneuver through deception. It's possibly true. But it is, it is the outcome of a secularized culture where we have become pragmatic with our thinking. It is, it is what seems to be the most practical thing to do, not what seems to be a response of obedience to God's holy word. It is what yields the best outcome. So, so, so well, we have on one hand here Christians who are married and are going through divorce or difficult marriages and some of you know some of those people right and you also some of and you see some of unbelievers who are walking around very romantic and loving one another right and you think I think my relationship with that unbelieving girl can survive or that unbelieving it is utilitarian it is secularism that is eating you up and the end is that there will be no good and faithful servant for you it will be a shipwreck of your very own faith.
So with these realities in mind, what is the end goal of secularism? The end goal of secularism, I would say, is again two things. The first one is that it is to convince you whether God exists or not, it does not matter. Whether God exists or not, does not matter. It makes you a confessing theist, but a practical atheist. What that means is, secularism is, this, is the system of thought that produces people who will sit here on a hall like this on this, on this Sunday afternoon and sing songs of worship and pray and listen to a sermon. And then once you walk out of that door, you live a life that does not even show proof that God exists. So in life, in function, you're an atheist. In confession, you say, me not you are God, and Kanisa, but your life is in essence that of an atheist. You don't live your life as if God actually exists. So that's the first outcome of secularism. The second is to convince you that your faith and your beliefs and your devotion to God are only necessary and they only matter for your private life and not in the public square. The secularism aims to tell you that once you walk out of your door, what you believe does not matter. It only matters when you want to pray. It only matters on a Sunday like this one. But when you are dealing with other things of life from Monday to Friday, Monday to, Monday to Saturday, that's your own private matters. When you're in the public sphere, when you talk about politics, as you think about your academics, as you think about all other things of life, they have nothing to do with your faith whatsoever. Brethren, the gospel confronts us in a very sense that of our lives that it aims to change every area of our lives and to permeate every area of our lives that if, if the Lord is not Lord over everything that you have, he's not Lord at all. So, so a case in point is when you people are discussing your campus politics, or national politics, how many times do you slow down to evaluate the candidates that you are supporting on something other than their tribal issues and, and interrogate their ideas, whether they are actually in agreement with your Christian values. What are your views about the law and abortion? 
the law and LGBTQ, the law and divorce, and what informs them? Are they informed by the many sophisticated philosophies that have been crafted by modern day macho men or feminists to inform us how we ought to think about those things? What are your thoughts about comprehensive sex education that is a government policy? And how are you thinking through them as a Christian? But even further, in your academics, as you study all those philosophies and theories that you're wrestling with, as you study through all of the science and the technology that you are doing, are you thinking about them fundamentally as a Christian or simply as someone who has no conscience that God exists? As a, as, a, as a medical student, have you thought about what the Bible thinks about contraception? As a business student, have you thought about what are the implications of the gospel or the ideas of free market and entrepreneurship? And so we are having more unbelievers writing on scientific and academic subjects over and over again, and very few Christians who are actually challenging secular thoughts that advances nothing godly. Or are you people who are listening to me today convinced completely that the Bible is not clever enough to respond to your sciences? Or are you thinking that the Bible is not clever enough to respond to your academic theories? And so I, I seek to challenge you, even as you study, to not only study as secular people, but to, to think at every turn truly as believers. Because it is necessary and it is urgent. Because if you don't, if you don't, if you do not labor to scientifically reason about the origin, the, the point where life begins, you will be forced as a medical doctor to carry out an abortion. What do you consider your intellectual silence today or thoughtlessness? It is the same tools that will be used against you in the near future. But that, and I think this is what I was asked to come and talk about, is that secularism has entered its head into the church, sadly. That the church has been reduced to a public utility. Churches are the open grounds in our communities where we can carry out a medical camp or a free eye clinic. And I don't have a problem with people doing a free eye clinic. 
But let's be honest. When was the last time your local church in the village did a discipleship seminar? And when was the last time did they do a free eye clinic? Are you getting where we are headed towards? That we are having believers gathered on a Sunday like this, talking about, and someone is standing on a pulpit like this and telling them that it is important to plant trees. And I don't have a problem with people planting trees. Don't get me wrong. Please plant as many trees as you can. But that is something that Jaikwat Environmental Club can do, right? So if we come here on a Sunday and the sermon is about the importance of planting trees or the Christian commitment to tree planting, what will the environmental club do? So we have reduced the churches into a public utility and our aim is to push away God further into the corner. And also we have made it an environment where unbelievers, and there could be so many of you here who are unbelievers, are comfortable. That, that's the aim, is to, is to make them feel at home. You are... And our eyes have shifted away from the true convener of this meeting, the God for whom we have gathered to worship. So we are more careful that we have organized our program that we organize, that we are revisiting our doctrines to make them less. We don't talk about some of the things that need to be talked about on the pulpit because they are uncomfortable. And so in the end, the church slogan has become the world is watching. Have you heard of that? Have someone ever told you you should behave nicely as a Christian because the world is watching. It's true, but it has become the central theme of, of Christian affairs, that the world is watching. That has not always been the case. The case has been, Koramdio, that God is watching. That believers live the way they live, not because they are being watched by the world, but because God is watching. And so, what the church teaches about parenting is inspired by Sigmund Freud or what the church teaches about dating and marriage is inspired by secular humanists. What the church teaches about money it is inspired by secular humanistic economists. So, so that when you people are beginning your relationships, there are very few people of you who have sat down and have a proper conversation about marriage. And the two of you are in a relationship. And it's okay. And you don't think you have a problem. There was no conscious conversation about sexual purity. And so you are just here winging it like the rest of the world. 
and you're more concerned about how many wonderful places you're able to take one another. So that this has become the tragedy of our times. That there is a lot of secular thought coming into the church and the Christian life. And very little of biblical thought being discussed about in your midst. Two scriptures that we will read today that help us to, na- to navigate through this situation we have found ourselves in. First one is First John, chapter one, chapter two, verse fifteen to seventeen. <clears throat> John is saying, "Do not love the world or the things in the world." And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And, from, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So that the first response is, is not to, to merge. It's not to find, and I hear that a lot, where is the middle ground? It's, it's not, that's, that's not a response to worldly ideas and worldly philosophies. Our, we are not invited to create some, some, a smoothie of biblical Beliefs and and worldly ideas. You're not being asked to to lift Americs and contextualize him as a Christian to your to your lifestyle as a man. You're not being invited to do those things. You're being invited to clearly not love the world and the things that are in the world. To declare an enmity with worldliness. And what is in the world, John says, it is the desire of the flesh, the need for gratifying your fleshly needs. That what, what rules people today is I need, I need, I want, I should get, I should have. And they move from there. They go to, I like that thing because it looks nice. And their eyes. So that they are constantly thinking about what is the next pretty thing to pursue. Recently, someone wrote a whole article explaining how when he was married, that is when he, he he met the love of his life. And, and, and you want, what are you talking about?
their eyes, what the people of the world see is what leads them. And the arrogance of life, the arrogance of possession, it is who owns a bigger car, who owns a bigger phone, And how can we excuse ideas that make us comfortable with all these things? Comfortable with gratifying our needs, fleshly needs, or fulfilling the ones that our eyes want to keep looking at? Or what continue to fund our arrogance for life? And those people who live like that, dear brethren, are sworn enemies of God. Those people who live that kind of a life, the love of God is not in them. But a second response of a similar nature to secularism It's contained in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Scripture says that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. So, the second response to secularism is saying that your beliefs, everything that you are convicted of in the scriptures is not only for your own private consumption, that you are convinced that your Christian faith has space in every area of life. And if there is none, you will make some for it. Because no one lights a lamp and puts it in a, bas- in a basket. So that when the secularists tell us that we do not need your God to define our morality, you tell them it does not work like that. So when your classmates are coming to you, utterly confused about romance and relationship as it is here on campus. That you're not shy to say what exactly the Bible says about that matter and about their lives. And the effect is twofolded. That to those who are dying, it will be truly the aroma of death. But to some other people, it will be truly life-giving perfume. So, brethren, we have two-folded response to secularism. That when secularism is asking us to adopt ideas that are not based on God is that we will say no I have died 
to the world, and the world has died to me. So the world does not define how we will dress, how we will think about marriage, how we will think about all, all that we are learning here on campus, how we will think about church and its governance. God, God's word will do that. And we will pride only in the cross. And on the other hand, we will not leave the world to form our own small secluded community. We will move around spreading the fragrance of Christ in all fields. So when, all, when you become a doctor, you are first a Christian. You're not just a student. You are first a Christian. So three things that you need to think about as we come to the end of this someone. The first question is, are you convicted of the gospel? Are you convicted of the gospel? There are some of you who are convinced they are believers, but they cannot explain the gospel. In fact, chances that some of you, if you had the gospel, you would reject it and still call yourself a Christian. And you see, there is nothing like that. That unless we are clearly and thoroughly convicted that the gospel is true, that there is no other way to God except through Christ Jesus. And anyone who has not come to Christ, is an enemy of God. And when God comes, he will come to destroy those very people. Unless we are utterly convinced of the gospel and turn to God in repentance, we are pray. Easy pray for secularism. But second thing, to be to consider highly and to, deep, and to deeply reflect on God's word. One of the reasons, and as even as I try to appeal to you as passionately as I can not to accept secularism that tells you that your Christian thoughts and values are not welcome. One of the biggest problems to that is that for many Christians, they don't even have any thoughts about their faith. They do not know what should be known or thought about, by, about concerning their faith. That we are only here on Sunday to hear a random sermon, and then we don't think about God any longer. We don't think about God's word anymore. That Today, Christianity consists of very many people who have chosen ignorance. It is a tragedy 
It's a tragedy. That someone will come to you and tell you, show me one verse <clears throat> where Jesus opposed same-sex marriage. And you start looking for a way of changing topic. Is that today we are plagued with such Christian thoughtlessness. Thoughtlessness. That we have become lazy to think as Christians. We have become lazy to reflect on God's word and think about its true application. We have not concerned our minds to reflect deeply on how God's words instructs us, on how people should serve and live with one another in the local church, and how the affairs of the local church should be, to be run. We are only depending on pragmatic ideas. It's a tragedy that for most of you here, you will hardly lift a book to help you build your Christian thought. You will only probably read a book that encourages you to do some positive affirmation. To consider highly and reflect deeply on God's word. Because God's, words, God's word is trustworthy. So that there are few of you who can give a proper reason why you sing the songs you sing here, in, here on this Christian Union. I, I am certain there are very few of you who would, who would give a satisfying reason about why things should be ordered the way they are ordered here. What is the important thing in a, local, in a, in a fellowship like this and what is not necessary? And it's such a tragedy that we have thought and assumed that God's word is silent on so many issues while it is very, very loud. Should, should Christians take one another to court? Write an essay. And if you cannot explain that, what will you do when you get an opportunity to take a Christian to court? Tell me, how, how would you respond? You see? A pool of worthlessness. And that, and, 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 that, and lastly, is to think deeply about your eternity. If there is anything that secularism aims to achieve today is to make us think highly of the temporal and think very lightly 
of the eternal. Some of you here, will only be granted by God to live a very short life. Some of you here will live very, very long. But brethren, if it is not your song, your song of life is not, come, Lord, come. You are unworthy of his kingdom. It, it's, it's the last phrase of scripture. That's, that's how the Bible ends, literally. The Bible ends in verses 20 and 21. It says, He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John responds, Amen. Come, Lord, come. So today, we are busy, very busy, rebuking the demon of premature death. And yet we forget that's not, it's not a biblical view in the first place. It's, the scripture is telling us to live daily, singing, Come, Lord, come. That I long for the day that you shall walk in the streets of gold. That's an urgent reality. But some of you here do not think highly of your eternity. I, I, I have a brother we served with in campus, in the exec. We finished campus a year later, diagnosed with, with cancer, and he passes on, and we gather together and cry, you know this brother lived a full life, I tell you. He did not live a half-life. It was not, it's not a premature death. His life is a testimony. His zeal is a testimony of a fully lived life. And we shall be united with him again. But the hearts of true saints sings one song. Come, Lord, come. Come, Lord, come. And when you get gripped by your temporary afflictions, your temporary glories, and forget that beyond that river, there is a cloud of saints cheering us on to overcome this world. We are lying open for the attack of secularism. In the first service, I mentioned the story of this man, Demas, Demas is mentioned in Colossians 4.14 and in, 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 in Philemon. Uh, in Philemon, Philemon, here in verse 23, verse 20, yes, verse 23 and 24 says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And, and Paul, he says, there is this man, Demas, that we are working with here, a fellow worker in the ministry. 
But much later, as he's writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10, he says, verses 9 and 10, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. Brethren, the, the Church of Christ is safe under his arms. Your local congregations might fall and collapse altogether. As Frederick Nietzsche said that churches will become tombs of God. That might be true of the buildings. In fact, after Doris has transited, who knows, maybe Jake Watts, you will degenerate to secularism like no man's business. Whether that happens or not, the beautiful bride of Christ, the church, will remain and will never be overcome by the gates of hell. That's a fact. But for you, seated here this day, listening to me, it is a battle for your own soul. It is a battle for your own soul. It is a battle for truth that sets you free. And will your story be like this man, Demas, as people talk about you 10 years from now, telling their stories about campus? And they'll be talking about John, a fellow worker, but who has fallen in love with this present world. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh Lord, it's not humanly possible for me as a person to paint to these dear ones how destructive secular thinking is bad for them. It's even a harder task for me to help them know when it comes and how to reject it. I may try as your grace, as your grace enables, but it's truly hard. We have seen generations of men men in your vineyard making a shipwreck of their faith. Some names we respected highly but today they, they write books that, that reject the very truths that they once so strongly advocated. Names that can be named here in the hearing of these students, Lord, some of whom they know, some of them, some of them they do not know. But one time, they believed the scriptures to be inerrant and able to make wise the simple. But today, 
They have been caught up in the spirit of the age that they do not ask any longer, what does your word say? And, and perhaps there are many who are here, Lord, who are not even aware that their soul is truly besieged by the enemy. But, oh Lord, I pray that would you be gracious to them. Would you be gracious to them, Lord, to point them to where your light is shining in Calvary, that, Lord, they will be convinced of your mercy and your grace, and they will look to you for pardon, and they will look for you for being restored. Lord, I trust you, Lord, with their lives as they pursue careers, Lord. Lord, as they, they become doctors, as they become engineers, as they become businessmen, as they become corporate leaders, as they take up many spheres of employment, both social and economic, and in many other places that they will be joining in, Lord, we I pray, Lord, that their eyes will see the invitation of the world to indulge in their sinfulness. And I pray, Lord, that you will grant them the courage to walk away from jobs that demands from them to be sinful and to stand in the face of ridicule and say proudly, that I glory only in the cross of Christ. For I am dead to the world, and the world is dead to me. Dear gracious Lord, preserve your own. In Christ's name we pray. can appreciate him once again. I believe that we all have heard the word of God. I will not like to water it down, but let it bear fruits in your hearts and may it uh, direct how you would live in this, in this world. Even as we reflect more on it, uh, you can share it with your friends while you go for those group discussions and when you have your normal conversations. <coughs> uh, last thing, the welfare committee are having cells at uh, the both of the exits. You can pass by to Toya Baridi. They have warm or hot uh, coffee and some sandwiches. Uh, and also books. You can pass by and, and support. Uh, lastly, um, 
those who are intending to apply for, for bursaries uh, to cater for their fees, you can uh, present or bring your applications by Wednesday, 13th, this coming Wednesday. You can give it to any member of the welfare committee or uh, any executive uh, member, or you can just drop them at the CEO office. We have come to the end of the service. We apologize for the time spillage. You can have a lovely Sunday and full of good favor and find warmth uh, in your blankets and in your jumpers. <laughs> we can arise and share the words of grace. Uh, before the words of grace, <laughs> uh, this is Noah Siokan, the Median Publicity Secretary, uh, doing his last semester in JQuart. Uh, now may the grace. Well. Have a lovely day. Thank you today.